Episode 63, A Better Way to Invest in Healthcare. Today, I speak with Trevor Price from Oxian Holdings. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Traditional investment practices involve one dimension of business, money, the giving of money in the hopes of getting back more money. But in healthcare, as Trevor Price from Oxian Holdings says, you can do well and do good at the same time. Today, I speak with Trevor about the three aspects of the business that he founded to help growing healthcare businesses navigate the transformation of healthcare. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. Today, I am pleased to speak with Trevor Price, who is currently spending his time advising, investing, and or conducting retained executive search for companies transforming the healthcare system. How did I do reading the first sentence of your bio, Trevor? <laughs> I think that was well read. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So let's talk about Oxian Holdings. What are you doing over there? Sure, yeah. Oxian Holdings, we think of as a healthcare growth services firm. We provide a wide range of services to healthcare companies that are going through substantial growth. And that really includes, you know, connecting them with great people through our executive search firm. We utilize all of our relationships that we form throughout the industry to develop a lot of revenue and business development opportunities. We provide strategic capital through our investment arm. We actually even have taken a step further and use the fifteen to 20,000 conversations we have annually with healthcare executives to mine and identify new opportunities for products or new markets to target. And we collaborate with organizations to go after those, or we even start companies from scratch. So we've, we have a venture studio that will start companies de novo. So it's really a range of services for organizations that are trying to figure out how to navigate just massive, massive transformation and reform and what is effectively 18% of GDP. So lots of growth. Indeed. All right. So why don't we sort of methodically navigate the various aspects of your organization? Sure, sure. So it, everything for us starts with a retained executive search, really what we refer to as invested executive search. We, as a firm, will do over 100 searches for senior executives, really in three different types of companies, early stage venture-backed companies. And we work with many of the leading venture capital firms in funding you know, kind of early growth stage initiatives. We do the same with private equity-backed companies, so work with the leading private equity firms and working with companies that are doing 25 to $500 million in revenue. And then we work extensively from an executive search standpoint across leading for-profit and not-for-profit organizations. So the leading health systems in the country, the leading providers in the country, large self-insured employers, and then big public technology and service companies that are servicing. It's really across the payer, provider, employer, consumer axis where healthcare is being really fundamentally changed right now. And so the, that search work for many executive search firms is really a revenue and commission oriented type of business. For us, it's very different. Our firm's mission is to make people healthier. It's not to recruit the next big executive. And our core values are really around intellectual curiosity and a spirit of generosity and collaboration and and grid, and those are not traditional values for an executive search firm. 
all of that's because we think more about the relationships that we build as a result of search and the conversations we have and the learnings we actually are exposed to as a result of all of those conversations. And then we apply that knowledge and that information, 15 to 20,000 conversations a year to make smart investments, to generate revenue and to create companies from scratch. But it all really starts with executive search. And executive search is really an interesting thing right now in healthcare because a lot of people would say that innovation in healthcare is being challenged by two things. One is people, getting the right people in place to grow and scale these companies, which have historically not in an industry that's not been very innovative or transformational. And then the second is really very challenging sales cycles. Selling to hospitals and insurance companies and large self-insured employers is oftentimes a 12 to 24-month investment, which... Let me just interrupt you for for a moment there and circle back to what you just said, which I found really interesting. I mean, in so many words, could I interpret what you said that the difference between a successful startup or a successful healthcare player that is actually making a difference in transforming healthcare and one that fails to do so would be the team that's in place? I think many people would, uh, I personally think if you look at the three-legged stool of product market and people, team, you know, I, and I think many people think that great teams will take small markets and bad products and figure their way out of it. Whereas a bad team, a, a team that's not working well together or doesn't have the right people in the right place can blow a huge market and a great product. And so in that proverbial three-legged stool of entrepreneurship and of innovation, we think the people leg of the stool is more important than the product in the market. And I think, you know, if you think about just healthcare in general, it's a massive market. So there's no question there's a market there. And it's such a laggard in its adoption and consumption of technology and consumerism and all different types of things that every other industry, for the most part, maybe outside of education has adopted. And so it's not like there's a lack of product need. This is not an industry that is way out in front of the curve on product. So what's left is people. And what's so interesting, Stacey, is that in technology in Boston and San Francisco and other technology hubs, there's multi-generational entrepreneurial success, right? There's literally five, six generations of entrepreneurs who've been successful in driving change in whatever they're doing. And in healthcare, particularly on healthcare technology and services, it's not really the case. There isn't a major innovation hub like Menlo Park, Palo Alto, or like Cambridge. And there aren't multiple generations of successful entrepreneurs who know how to, who kind of quote, know how, know the playbook, so to speak. And so getting the right people in place to build these companies is critical. And that's why, you know, from the standpoint of the search we do, we really think that we're playing, frankly, a huge role in the, in the success that our clients are having and changing the way healthcare is delivered or consumed. You know, I've heard it said that great tactics can fix even the worst strategy and bad tactics can ruin even the best strategy. I'm mm-hmm. thinking maybe that the word tactic should be replaced by people, that great people can fix even the worst strategy and bad people could ruin even the best one. Yeah, well, I mean, look, tactics are nothing if not executed by people. And so a constant source of discussion is how much healthcare expertise do we need in changing the healthcare industry and how much kind of tech entrepreneurial business expertise do we need? And what do you think the mix is? 
You know, it's, I, I think, to be honest with you, it depends on the stage of the company and the role. And I'm sorry for dodging the question. I think it's an impossible question to actually provide true clarity on. It's, you know, I think in a product role, oftentimes what we see is organizations blending and they'll actually bifurcate the product function and they'll have really almost a product marketing person may come from healthcare and a product management person who really understands how to build exceptional product will come from outside of healthcare. In the CFO role, for example, you know, the bottom line is if, if the business is not underwriting risk, we're, and there's a lot of healthcare businesses now that are actually taking on clinical risk. If the business isn't actually taking on clinical risk, a lot of times you don't need healthcare expertise in a CFO. They're taking on clinical risk and they're actually managing populations and taking actuarial positions. You need, you probably need healthcare experience. And then the challenge for the CEO in particular is how much do you need that person to drive enterprise sales cycles and try to get access to leading health systems or insurance companies where they can walk in the door and immediately have the credibility to be able to structure these complex deals that are taking 18 to 24 months. I think it depends on the role and then it depends on the stage in the company. Well, it's interesting. I was listening to Jason Kalanakis, who's a VC in Silicon Valley, who Mm -hmm. said the other day that he thought that healthcare was the second most difficult vertical after education. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure why or how he made that statement. But do you think it's an issue that entrepreneurs with business sense are sort of looking over their various options, the world is their oyster, and thinking, huh, I might as well go and disrupt laundry because this healthcare thing seems difficult. And if I want to make a fast, you know, if I want to be a big success, I could pick something that's simpler. Well, yeah. So I mean, that's a multi-level question that, first of all, I think if you operate, if you decide to work in healthcare, I don't think in this, I'm I'm biased, but I don't think this is an industry where people go to get rich quick, right? I mean, that's Snapchat or whatever, you know, the types of stuff that are being built and sold for billions of dollars in Silicon Valley. That's not what healthcare is all about. So I do find that the majority of people and even the people that we recruit through our search firm from outside of healthcare have a mission orientation and understand the value of coming to work every day and you know having a societal impact, which that sounds grandiose, but I have the conversation over and over and over again. So I do think that the second part of your question is, are we setting ourselves up for real issues? Right now, it is the golden age of, uh, and I don't know if the golden age is the right term, but it is just a, a wide open landscape of innovation and entrepreneurship right now in healthcare. Companies being started all the time. What you're seeing though, Stacey, is that 18% of GDP and government mandated reform and business models under massive pressure is causing non-healthcare investors to come in and treat the companies that are being started like tech companies. And the big question for everyone, and there's been a fair amount talked about it recently, is do you value Oscar Health, which is a health plan? Is it a health plan or is it a tech company, right? Do we have actual investment comparables that prove that healthcare companies can be valued like tech companies. And if so, great, then the valuations that are being paid for being paid by the large, you know, non-healthcare investors will be justified. If not, two to three years down the road, when a lot of these companies come up for their next round of funding, you may see a real challenge in terms of down rounds and disillusionment. And that's what a lot of us are concerned about. We see outrageous valuations being priced into these companies that have relatively small amounts of revenue because they're saying, well, this company's got validation. It can grow into the valuation that we're giving it. 
And um, if they don't, you know, watch out two years down the road, it will be, it will, there will be a painful period. We're going to get a correction anyway. The question is how tough is the correction for everyone to, to, to digest, in my opinion. And I do see also a sort of difference between the individuals that you're talking about right now, you know, ones who are very passionate and driven and who got into healthcare for the right reasons, mm-hmm. between that group and then some of the vested interests who at this juncture anyway, control the industry. You know, those people out there who are, you know, hoarding data, despite the fact that if you are patient-centered in the most mild sort of way, understand that the data that you're hoarding, because data equals money, um, is exactly the wrong thing for, for patient care. I could understand that if you're a passionate entrepreneur looking to really make a difference and you're confronted with what did Esther Dyson call the healthcare industry, a calcified hairball of, <laughs> of individuals who are yeah. perhaps not in the industry for the right reason, that that could be very disillusioning. I would think that if you were, if I were an entrepreneur starting a business, one of the first things I would be trying to, there's, you know, you would be trying to develop an ROI model for whatever you're building and you would be trying to really map out and have very deep clarity on all of the aligned interests because every single one of these entities, and by the way, it's funny, like, you know, the providers and the health systems and the doctors of the world in many ways kind of position themselves as, you know, upstanding and above all of the economic fray, but they're just as bad as the insurance company in terms of, you know, the charge masters and what they bill. And so, you know, they blame the insurance companies for being, you know, the economically driven entities, but the health systems are just as bad. And the doctors are, they're used to fee for service models where, you know, it's, you can call it RVUs or you can call it whatever you want. It's many doctors get paid for, you know, the procedures that they do, not all, but many do. And so it's a pretty unique situation when someone isn't keeping that in the back of their mind. Well, as a healthcare economist or working with healthcare economists, it's, I always find it very coincidental that strangely, the only way really to motivate someone to do something is if it makes financial sense. Totally. So. <laughs> I, and, and that's a, that is a really scary thing to contemplate for all of us when you think about it from the standpoint of your health, right? I mean, look, many people read A Bitter Pill. If you didn't, it's definitely worth reading. It does not paint a rosy picture of how hospitals make money, but it is the reality. But it's really, you know, it talks about just price, frankly, price gouging from the standpoint of, you know, what hospitals are charging. It's really scary. And so there's two major trends that are going to, I think, rock the industry over the next 10 years. The first is very much around the shift from fee-for-service to fee-for-value and just the entire change in the way the industry thinks where they're getting a set amount to take care of someone and that they're, they have to deliver quality outcomes and do it in a way that's cost-effective and that you know it, it, it changes compensation and it changes staffing models and it changes the way the systems use technology, et cetera. The second huge trend is the shift from being a physician-centric delivery model to a consumer-centric delivery model. And that, in some ways, may be even a bigger systemic change because, in reality, not every healthcare provider and healthcare system is going to go to value. But in a world where consumers actually have access to things like health grades and Yelp and Castlight and you know, vitals and all of these tools that allow them to actually make intelligent decisions as a consumer, 
that affects every hospital system, whether they're value or fee for service. And so the shift to treating patients like consumers, not patients like patients, is going to really fundamentally change the way hospitals work and frankly, insurance companies, because insurance companies have to retain their members for longer as well if they're operating on an insurance exchange model. So there's just huge, huge fundamental core change happening in the industry. How do you see that affecting the recruitment portion of, of your business, spiraling back to that? Is the best well, person- So it makes us very busy. Um, you know, <laughs> and we, that. We, we, yeah, we're like uh, incredibly busy. I think that our firm is just under a four-year-old firm and you know, we'll do 100 searches this year and we'll probably turn away 300 to 350 searches because we don't have, we just don't have the capacity to do them. It's putting a tremendous amount of pressure on the types of executives, right? So there's this constant balance between, you know, we need executives to come in and scale these venture private equity-backed companies that are driving transformation. You know, there's this question that we talked about before, they need to understand healthcare, but they also need to understand how to scale a technology or service company. And unfortunately, there are not that many examples in healthcare where the two overlap. Right. So there's a lot of healthcare knowledge, but that there's not a lot of healthcare knowledge with private equity venture type scale and growth. And so it's it's trying to identify, you know, where you go with the healthcare expertise, where you go with the scale expertise, and how to find the people who can do both. That's probably the biggest challenge that we see on a day-to-day basis on the executive search side. I will tell you that the pressure on the sales organizations for these companies is immense. Going back to the valuation issue, these valuations that are being priced into the, a lot of the venture back deals are based on enormous future revenue. And so the, the immediate trickle-down effect under the sales organization is enormous. I would not want to be a head of sales for you know a venture-backed healthcare technology or service company right now. Yeah. And alluding to what you had mentioned earlier about sales cycles, I think one of the things that you can talk to someone who's in sales in the healthcare industry for about 14 seconds before they tell you that you could approach a customer today and maybe two years from now. I mean, like in general, or if you're really lucky, sometimes time three or four quarters from now? Sales cycles are, as I said before, people and sales cycles are what are gating factors for for the success of these businesses. You know, it's so amazing. It's a very rare situation that we see a business plan from the investment side of our business where you're not like, wow, that is a really exciting value proposition. I totally get it, right? Like, I get why someone would want that. And very quickly, you have to move past the concept and the value proposition and move directly to you know, what angle do they have to turn 18 to 24 month sales cycles into three to six month sales cycles? And what's the revenue model? Because one of the things we don't see a lot of is we don't see typical SaaS based revenue models scaling effectively in healthcare. Why? Because of sales cycles. So the businesses that you see going from very small to very large in the industry are oftentimes managed service contracts where there's technology and services combined. You look at all of the payer services businesses or the Evalence of the world or Accolade or Health Catalyst. These are all businesses that are signing you know, seven and eight figure annual revenue contracts, not 200,000 to $1 million annual revenue contract. There's different models that are succeeding from a growth standpoint. And that might be a nice segue into the second aspect of Oxian Holdings, which is the Oxian Investments. Sure. We do it. I mean, we manage our own money, so we don't don't have outside investors. Um, 
I would really view us as kind of a super angel. So our investments range from, you know, twenty-five dollars to $100,000 to a million to $2 million. And we don't lead deals. And oftentimes we don't take board seats. We're kind of co-investing with the venture and private equity firms that we collaborate with. We invest capital like any other investor. We also will build out a management team for equity. So we kind of, from if you look at it from a search standpoint, we in a way put our money where our mouth is. We say, you know, we want to own equity in the company and, and we'll do that because we're confident that we will build out a, a world-class management team, which we think is really, you know, the most important part of success. So it's kind of, you start to see the synergies of the, the Oxygen Holdings model. I see the plan coming together. <laughs> so, so the other element to that, though, which is really cool, is when we make an investment, we actually, one of the major criteria in terms of, there's really a couple of criteria that define whether it's a $100,000 investment or a $2 million investment. And, and one of them is whether or not we can really influence the team and build a world-class team. The other is, is how much revenue we can drive to the company. Because what we do is we'll look at who their customers are, who are the people who buy their products and services, and then we've, we've built mechanisms to mine our net, network of relationships. So if we are looking at a company that sells to chief financial officers of health plans, if that's the buyer of what they do, we probably know 75% of the CFOs in the country at, at major health plans through our executive search function. And so we can, they actually really appreciate looking at early stage innovation, right? Because that's not what they're doing every day. And so we can facilitate opportunities for our investments with their potential clients. And that incredibly has resulted in over $2 billion of LOIs and total contract revenue for our investment portfolios. So that's pretty, it's pretty cool synergy there too. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I was reading yesterday, there's an article in Fortune magazine, which was entitled, what more can you do for me? Right. And it, and it was about unicorns, startups who are asking for more than just money from their investors. As so. they should, as they should, right? I mean, you know, we, that's exactly the point. I really think that Andreessen Horowitz in particular has changed the way we think about investors. And we, we like to say, actually, we have actually outside people who've said the same thing, but I like to joke that we're a lot like Andreessen Horowitz, except we're investing $5 million and they're investing $5 billion, right? And, and um but they have an executive search function and they have a you know, product team and they have a strategic marketing team and they have a shared services team and they, have, they bring all of that to bear above and beyond the capital that they provide. And it's, a really, it's really shaken up the venture capital industry in my mind. And we think the same way. If you just look at executive search, the fact that the fee structure for retained executive search is the same as it was in the 80s and 90s when we didn't have the internet and we didn't have LinkedIn and we couldn't email and text and we didn't know, there was no marketing and advertising for conferences and who's speaking, et cetera. The fact that the fee structure hasn't completely changed is crazy. The, the, the job is a much easier job today than it was 25 years ago. And so we think to be able to continue to operate in an executive search model, we have to add a lot of value on top of that. And that comes in this concept of a spirit of generosity where we really are trying to facilitate relationships and we try to bring value from a business development standpoint. But the industry, the search industry as a whole, I think a lot of services, I mean, we're digressing, Stacey, but I think the legal industry, like law firms don't make a lot of sense anymore. I mean, there's just a lot of these industries should be broken down and redone. And search is definitely one of them. Well, as you said earlier, given the fact that a top quality team is such a 
critical factor in the success of an organization, as well as customers. The fact that as Oxian Investments, you can bring both to the table. I could see why that is a distinct benefit for the companies that you invest in. We've done, we've taken a step further. So we've eradicated all commissions at our firm. No one at our firm gets paid to do things individually or to like, no one gets paid to bring in a search here or to work on a search or to recruit an executive that completes a search. That's, that's the traditional executive search compensation model. And again, you can call it whatever you want. Those are commissions. That model of paying someone to do, to do something while there are people who do it with the best of intentions, it also does create and it can breed bad decisions. For example, if in a traditional executive search firm, if I recruit a great CFO and I can't place them on a company that I'm working with, you know, my compensation model does not motivate me introducing them to someone across the hall from me because they place them and they get paid. You know, there's an alignment issue with executive search. We've tried to focus on this concept of alignment and that we want to be aligned with our clients so that when we recruit a head of sales for that company and we own equity in that company, you can be sure that we think that head of sales is the best head of sales possible for, you know, we have an equity investment in the company. And I think the industry as a whole remains too transactional. Well, I can really see what you're doing, which is unique. In other words, if you maintain, which I know you do, my friend, you maintain the relationships with both the people that you place as well as the companies that you place them in, that group, you know, that organization that you worked with is a potential customer perhaps for another company that you're working with. So if you have this very aligned organization internally where everyone can talk amongst themselves, you can really wind up being a catalyst that generates a positive sum game. What we want to do is we want to use that brand association to gain access and an ability to have conversations with the people associated in, in, in the universe around those companies. And then what we do with those conversations, you know, that conversation can be used to complete a search, but it can also be used to do due diligence on an investment. And it can be used to facilitate revenue for a company that we know or are invested in. And then the last thing that we do is it can be used to, to kind of identify you know, problems and opportunities in the industry. And that is a really good segue into your venture studio. Yeah. So so we're really excited about that. So, so we basically, you know, the search firm today affords us to have 15 to 20,000 conversations with, you know, really the senior most executives in healthcare. And, and I go back to our core values. We have a core value of intellectual curiosity. So we really encourage people here to have conversations for purposes other than just purely completing a search right? You have an opportunity to talk to the CEO of this business or the CFO of this business or the chief technology officer of this business. You should be able to learn something other than just learning whether or not they're the right candidate for your search. We take those learnings and we basically capture them and structure them and keyword them and sub-segment them in a database. And then we are able to effectively heat map all of those conversations. And what comes out of that heat mapping is big themes around problems and opportunities in the payer space or the provider space or the employer space or the consumer space. And then what we do is we take those overlaid problems and opportunity heat map kind of results and we ideate through them and we write effectively proof of concept business plans 
which and we so the philosophy yeah. there if i could just interject yeah. for a sec yeah, so sure. the philosophy there and i'm thinking of it's been said many times that if you want to find the biggest idea you need to find the biggest problem so kind of what you're thinking of is that if you can figure out what the biggest problems are across the various segments that you're dealing with, then you really have the opportunity to come up with a big idea that's going to generate a really great new company platform, the platform for a company. Yeah, well, so it's so so you have to look at that question and that comment from a specific perspective, which is, you know, when you look at it from a venture capitalist perspective, they only think about big ideas from a financial, you know, angle. Like this is this this is the unicorn. Well, the reason why is because that model is to get one unicorn for every twenty companies they invest in that don't succeed, and that's because that's how the, the financial model and it's how they raise money and deliver returns in venture capital. If you look at the big idea from an entrepreneurial standpoint, as being a founder of a company. You have a total, I mean, the, you know, like the person who runs the incredible frozen yogurt store in the corner, like there's this place that my kids love to go to called OMG Yogurt. And it's like amazing, right? That's not a, that's not a venture capital, big idea business, but for the person who started it, it sure is, you know, they love that thing and they've invested tremendously. And I, I know they have, you can tell. So big idea for us, it's really, this is part of the reason that, that we, really enjoy what we do. Like big idea is not a financial return for us. We could actually come across a big idea in our, in all of our conversations that's ideally suited for one of our existing clients because they're already operating tangentially in and around the space. And we'll share that with them. And by the way, if they wanted to build that and they didn't have the resources to build it, but they wanted to build it and license it, we'd probably build it with them and for them, right? So we'd structure a relationship where we say, we're going to do this over the next year, and then you're going to either acquire this product or you're going to license it for this market. Similarly, we could see, we, you know, this concept of physician-centric to consumer-centric, you know, transformation was something we heard over and over and over and over again in our conversations. Well, so we start working on a business plan there in our venture studio. And Coincidentally, this is really the synergies of the model. Coincidentally, we get asked to do the chief marketing officer search for one of the largest health systems in the country. So that search enables us to go out and have conversations with 150 chief marketing officers of hospital systems around the country where, yes, we're interviewing them. And yes, you know, we've completed that search and the client's thrilled. But we also learned a tremendous amount about the business that we are starting. Then you turn around and start that business, Stacey, and those 150 chief marketing officers that we talked to are now all business development candidates. They're sales candidates who we know whether or not consumer experience is an issue for them. So that's how the whole, that's really the whole thing. The search firm builds out the management team for that company. The investment firm funds that company. The relationships we gained as a result of the chief marketing officer search are the anchor clients for that company. And, you know, you're off to creating a high impact business which may not be a big business from a venture capitalist standpoint. That one happens to be, it's been funded by, by two top venture funds, but that doesn't have to be big businesses for in healthcare. You can impact lives and build a big business. It does not have to have venture type investment returns. As a founder of an organization myself, it, it's always a very striking contrast that there's a big difference between the perceived market value of a business and the income that it generates or the the, the product that it produces. And, and I don't think 
up to a couple of years ago, I quite understood that there is such a delta. Uh, this is massive in healthcare, right? Like we have in the past looked at valuing our portfolio of investments in two different ways. One is from traditional investment returns. And the second is from the number of lives that our investments are touching. You know, to us, a business like Landmark Health, which, you know, delivers home care, like physician-based care in the home for dual eligibles and complex Medicare populations, 5,000 patients in that population, those are really sick people who, you know, the quality of their life and the, is being substantially improved as a result of the service. We look at, there's a mechanism that we look at to say, well, that's worth a lot more than the dollars associated with the investment. You know, if you put both hats on at the same time, you'd love businesses that are driving real. The beauty about healthcare is you can do well and do good at the same time. And I think that's something that motivates us very much here in terms of you know, making investments that don't deliver impact to the end person receiving the care in one form or another. I don't think we would, I don't think we want to do that. And we're not a not-for-profit organization, as I remind our employees late at night as they're cranking away. So we want to strike that balance between, you know, working with companies that are impact driving companies from a clinical cost outcome standpoint and impact driving companies from a investment return standpoint. Well, the industry needs more like you, my friend. Let me ask you. Uh, let yeah, me... I'm having the time of my life. I got to be <laughs> honest with you. Like, I skip to work in the mornings, which is a great thing as a 46-year-old. Let me ask you one more question. It's been a burning question in my mind. Uh, yeah. and I've been dying I'm, to add. I'm, I'm nervous. Yeah, you should be. What is the difference between a unicorn and a black swan? Or are they the same thing? I'm, to be honest with you, I don't even know what a black swan is. I'm not, I'm not even sure I've heard the phrase before. What's interesting to me about this whole unicorn discussion, and I'll, you can tell me what a black swan is, and I'll, I'll take a shot at answering the question. But what's so interesting about the unicorn discussion is so many of these companies are achieving unicorn status in a privately determined valuation. And you know, to me, a, a unicorn is a company that's been started and grown and has achieved a liquidity event, either an M&A event or an IPO that has, has established over a billion dollars of value. Not, you know, there's companies in healthcare that have, you know, 10 to $50 million in revenue that are being valued at over a billion dollars market cap. That, those are not unicorns in my mind. There's a long way to go from where, from their series B valuation to, success, so to speak, from a financial return. But what's a black swan? And I'll, I'll, uh, I have no idea. I just, <laughs> maybe it's just like the new unicorn. <laughs> I don't know. Are there, are there actually black the swans? The new spirit yeah, animal. So this whole unicorn thing to me in healthcare is really, fr as you can tell, it's a frustrating concept because I think w what we have is it's, it's like the, it's like the two outs in the first inning, or it's like the top of the second inning of this, of this game. And as you know, you look at you look at companies like Evolent or Novalon or Teladoc. Those are companies that have been started relatively recently, and have built exceptional management teams and have very satisfied customers. And those are publicly traded at billion dollar market caps. And so that, to me, you know, creates that's a unicorn. Whereas you have other companies that are still relatively early in their developmental process that are achieving these valuations, but you know, they could go south just as easily as north in many situations. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed it and uh, appreciate the time and the interest in what we're doing here.
Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.